Hello, this is Nikki Toyamasito, Executive Director of Christians for Social Action, and your host for this episode of 20 Minute Takes. This week, we're joined by David DeLeon, producer for 20 Minute Takes, as well as a grad student at Fordham University. We discuss some of the work that he and I are doing together to document the stories of Asian American activists and to share a bit of what we can learn from these communities and these histories to inform Christian faithfulness in the public sphere today. David, thanks for talking with us today about uh, some of the work that you're doing. I am always happy to be on this side of the microphone. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad. I think one of the things, um, you know, as Christians for Social Action is a network of uh, scholar activists, uh, it's nice to take a pause to reflect on some of the work and the research that's happening uh, in in our group and in our network. And uh, today, one of the things we're going to talk about is some of uh, the work that you and I are doing together to document and research some of the contributions from Asian American activists and how that is maybe helpful, particularly in the North American context of what a faith-fueled engagement with justice looks like. Yeah, I'm glad that we got to do this research together. I think I've always wanted to talk about what political and sort of communal engagement can look like beyond just, like, everyone go and vote. And I think you and I talked about how sometimes even some of the Christian discourse around political action can sometimes just sort of default into that. So I think it was a gift to get to look into these Japanese American and Filipino American stories for for resources for the church and I'd say for society at large to think about um, political power differently. Yeah, totally. I think one of the things um, that spurred for me the need for um, I think a, a stronger articulation about the unique contributions of I'm going to say Asian American Christian activists is as I looked in our community, I saw several uh, moments kind of light on fire. I saw um, activists using the tools of other communities. Mm-hmm. And and I was just feeling like some of that is not working in our context. Mm-hmm. I think we have a deeply intergenerational relationship context. Uh, we're, we're relationally really interdependent, intertwined. And so some of the call-out culture or some of uh, the these other things that I think work to make cultural change, systemic change, you know, I was finding like it was having a, a, an interesting dissonance with how we sort of show up in the world. So I think that was part of what prompted my curiosity on this topic. What were some of the things that prompted your curiosity or your sense of the need uh, for for documenting and 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 uh, recording some of these stories of uh, Filipino activists in your in your specific context? So I think I want to answer this question similarly to how you answered yours, in that. I think sometimes the Asian American experience, and I'll say for a Filipino American, sometimes sort of to join in in justice movements, or even if it's a conversation on racial justice, for example, sometimes it feels like Asian Americans are invited to bracket their experience that they bring into bracket the conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah, that it's like, like you said, like to adopt either the language or the frameworks from other communities mm-hmm. um, for our own contexts. And while I think there is much to be gained from that sort of partnership and solidarity mm-hmm. and cross-communal learning, mm-hmm. I do think that there is wisdom lost from our particular vantage point, right? That mm-hmm. the voice and the stories that we bring 
are in themselves sort of gifts that we have mm-hmm. to offer. Mm-hmm. And I think I wanted to ask the question, well, yeah, like what are the stories of solidarity or what are the stories of creativity that mm-hmm. Filipino Americans, because of their very history and social yes. locations, right. um, actually bring to the forefront um, to either organizing or even just sort of like any sort of political engagement uh, at this point in time. So I think I wanted to see like, yeah, like what what is the story of Filipinos that we don't have to bracket, that we can actually bring to the fore, that can be generative and creative? Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, and I, I think probably what maybe is going unsaid, but really needs to be said, is that there is, before this work in research, a real homage to the work of the Black church. Yeah. Right? And the work of the Black church and that integration between faith and action and um, kind of the generations and decades of faithfulness there. Yeah. That um, I think creates a spaciousness to add some mm-hmm. of this nuance and, and, and that sort of a thing uh, mm-hmm. to the work that we're doing. Um, uh, to that point, uh, as you were doing some research, uh, what was the story that captured you or helped, helped you un- unpack and understand some of the contribution or some of the ways that the history and the experiences shaped uh, Filipino activists? There's a story of an agriculture labor rights activist named Larry Itliong. And his is a story that I feel like I heard over and over again while I was an undergrad and as a part of a Filipino community um, Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area at at my school. And for some reason, I think in this particular season, his story of organizing, his story of shrewdness, even sort of his immigration story itself had been very compelling to me. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Larry Itliang was born in the Philippines in the late 19th, early 20th century around there, back when the Philippines was still a colonial asset of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so like many Filipinos in that time, he heard stories from labor recruiters and even from neighbors of people who had moved to the U.S., Mm -hmm. told of great riches that you could pick gold up in the streets. And so he had this plan um, after supposedly having a fight with his dad, he had this plan to move to the U.S. and become a lawyer, make some money, and come back to the Philippines Mm. very Mm. quickly. And upon getting to the U.S., um, one of his uncles he meets in the streets of Seattle, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken, Mm -hmm. and his uncle comes to him and is like, hey, do you have some money I can borrow from you because I'm not making rent this month? And it was at that moment that Larry Leon was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Like, this was a bad move. This is a mistake. <laughs> the stories that I had heard of the U.S. are not true at all. Uh-huh. Um, and so riches it's, for everyone. Like riches kind of for thing. everyone. Yeah, yeah. even uh-huh. the brown guy that just came off of a ship, right? Yes. And and so he sort of very quickly sees the plight of the agricultural workers and like the uh-huh. cannery workers around uh-huh. him, and he becomes a laborer himself. Okay. Gets very involved early on, um, traveling up and down the West Coast, Alaska, all the way mm-hmm. to Southern California, mm-hmm. um, chasing the growing seasons mm-hmm. and sort of observing the plight of other Filipino men who had mm-hmm. moved in the early 20th century to the U.S. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much the only Filipino immigrants, for the most part, who were coming to the U.S. Mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He starts organizing agriculture workers and has some real successes in um, seeing the power of a strike, you know, Mm -hmm. and comes to uh, sort of 
the 1960s at this point, and uh, this generation of first immigrants from the Philippines had grown old here, um, okay. uh-huh. and they were still sort of working in really poor conditions with very mm-hmm. little pay. Mm-hmm. And so he decides to try to organize um, a strike, like a grape strike in Delano, California. Okay. At this time, you know, there are um, Mexican-American agriculture workers as well as Filipino-American agriculture workers. And they um, oftentimes, you know, the growers would sort of split like these two communities and pit them one against one another. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A Uh, strategy as old as time. As old as time, right? Yeah divide and conquer and Uh so you know the uh, filipino agricultural workers decided hey we're gonna strike and so he talks to the person who had been organizing the mexican-american farm workers who was cesar chavez ah yes a name we know that's a name that we know and he says hey like we're gonna strike and we really need you guys to be on board about this with us yeah um and dolores huertas and dolores huertas yeah in the mix there too yeah yes uh-huh. And so he uh, feels very hesitant. He's like, we're not ready to strike. Like, I don't know oh. if I could get my people on board to do this. Is that right? Yeah. You know, It Leong realized like, hey, like, unless we can all do this together, like, it's not going to happen. So he told Cesar Chavez, hey, if you don't go on strike with us this time, yeah. you can be sure that when your people uh, in the Mexican-American farm workers, when they go on strike, like, we're going to we're going to break that strike. Like, but it's uh-huh. not gonna, it's not gonna happen for you guys if it's not gonna happen for us. And that really sort of forced Cesar Chavez's hand, right? And so oh, it led oh. to the uh, first ever time that uh, Mexican American, yeah, <laughs> Mexican American and Filipino American farm workers were like working together, okay, even sort of sitting together, um, uh-huh. eating, sharing a meal, okay. um, and they decided to go on strike together, and that was the beginnings of. The United Farm Workers Movement, right? Which oh, so those two streams fed yes. into, and then mm-hmm. that was, and then from there formed United Farm Workers. Okay, yeah, and so I think in in a lot of ways, you know, you were talking about like what about these stories compelled you that they're worth remembering, and I think it's often that Larry Itliong's story is often sort of understood as a footnote, sort of to Cesar Chavez's well, I mean, sort of I ascendance. Even heard his name, yeah. until you brought that forward, and yet to hear. And yeah, a, and prominent role in in a uh, labor institution that I I'm very familiar with. Yeah, and, and so I think like maybe in some of my younger years, I was always sort of like I would sort of think about Larry Leong's story, especially in college. It'd be like it feels like we just kind of want a piece of this puzzle, like we just want a piece of the credit here. And I think like I I was obviously on my own journey, sort of thinking about Filipino American history and my own story in that. Mm-hmm. But I think as time went on, in many ways. I came to understand It Leong's story as one that sort of mirrored sort of a meta narrative for Filipinos and Filipino American history, which is Mm -hmm. sort of a forgotten sort of overlooked history here in the United States when Mm -hmm. sort of the, the, the ties and the intertwinings of our lives, um, our histories, our immigration stories are such that like, you can't really tell the fullest picture of United States history without sort of the the intertwinings of colonialism in the Philippines and immigration and, and uh, stories like this, you know? Yeah. And so telling It Leong's story was a way to make visible a voice and a presence of a people who often are not seen. Right. Um, 
who feel the pressures of assimilation, right? Who feel the pressures of forgetfulness. Um, but a way to sort of tell a story of someone who is really creative, who to the very end of his life, you know, It Leong uh, was all about sort of the movement, even at the expense of his own sort of personal success. Mm-hmm. And so there are countless mm-hmm. stories of that mm-hmm. um, toward even the end of his life, where he mm-hmm. really had a heart to see um, these older sort of Filipino-American farm workers taken care of and done mm-hmm. right by. Mm-hmm. It Leong's mm-hmm. story, I think, doesn't often sort of fall in the lines of like a clean cut, <laughs> like, uh activist who like you know champions sort of like on on high moral grounds or whatever uh-huh. but yeah, i think it's a story of like deep pragmatism and deep commitment to the people that he was fighting for which were these filipino american farm workers who were aging out right and yeah. i think his story is just one of creative pressure yeah one of recognizing the power of solidarity to sort of find um, collaborators who have shared mutual interests, but who may sort of exist in an entirely different community as yours. And I think that um, given sort of the the fragmenting of sort of racial and like identity discourse these days, I think that mm-hmm. his story is one that I think we can look back at and understand that everyone's motivations, I think, are like tainted uh, uh-huh. to some degree. Like no one is perfect, even in sort of our praxis for for partnership but at the end of the day i think it's a story that shows that like you do need each other and you need people from outside of your community (laughs) right like yeah yeah. it sounds like it's there's a historical element to the story to know it yeah but not necessarily to like create a hero yeah of him and Mm -hmm. but maybe to understand the push and the pull and understand the decisions in the context of what was true and real and the options that were at available. Exactly. Yeah. I think for me, as we were digging into these stories and really trying to document some of them, the um, two things sort of came uh, to mind for me. So um, the first is about Yuri Kochiyama and um, her particular work in partnership or learning from Malcolm X, and then later as part of the Free Mumia movement, that I, I always really respected her as a Japanese American woman slightly informed by her United Methodist faith um, in her activism, because I appreciated the way that she crossed over lines and found common cause with a wide breadth of communities. And at the same time, she continued to champion uh, the injustices of her own Japanese American community. So I, I think I really appreciated that, but I know she was deeply formed by her own experience of the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, often like kind of yeah. commonly known as internment camps. Yeah. And that and there was something about that experience and how, you know, this accusation of disloyalty, this uh which you know, just if you think of any uh adjective or insult you can throw to uh, someone f- from the Japanese community be about being disloyal. It's just one of the highest uh uh, kind of uh, attributes for the community and, and kind of how um, traumatic that experience was for just generations. But I appreciate how she used that experience and experience of her family and her broader yeah. community to inform sort of how she showed up. Um, I think the other thing that to me was uh, 
part of the work that I wanted to document was uh, there's this idea of uh, kintsugi uh, that uh, particularly I think in um, the Protestant Christian spaces in North America is really taken on. It's this practice, uh, this cultural practice of broken ceramics are being repaired by gold. And there's a lot of uh, spiritual metaphors that people take about that. Um, but I think that, you know, there there isn't within that model, right? They talk about how the seam is stronger uh, and the beauty of the broken piece that has been mended. And, and all of those things I think are very, very true. And at the same time, I also hear in that something of the Japanese fatalism uh, that, it, that, you know, kind of a, it cannot be helped. Uh, these, you know, these problems exist. So that's where I feel like mm. this Japanese American kind of faith-fueled engagement uh, that there's a little bit of a fire that goes in there. The, this idea that um, uh, that both a redemption or seeking for the repair of those things that are broken, yeah. um, but also a bit of an agitation that you know this is not how it how it needs to be. So uh, I think trying to document uh, some of the ways that those thoughts and the cultural things are entering into our understanding of faith, what faith looks like engaged. Um, were there some common themes that you think across the AAPI community uh, that are are helpful and, and help broaden categories of or values related to Christian civic engagement? I think the first is to remember that both of the, the figures that we researched and sort of tried to document um, in Kiri Kochiyama and Larry Itliang existed in the time prior to like the model minority mm, um, yeah. figure, yeah. right? And and in many ways, I think they represent a moment prior to sort of the broader U.S. societal assumptions about what it means to be an Asian American. Weren't they starting from just like straight invisibility? Yeah, or right, even it was like just, nothing. There wasn't even a preconception to start with. Is that yeah? And it was just accurate? even like it's. It was a season of more outward hostility toward Asian Americans that I think people did not recover in their consciousness until the COVID-19 sort of rise of anti-Asian violence, right? Uh -huh, that uh -huh. there was always this like, okay, yeah, play by the rules, assimilate, be the model minority, right? And and, and there's a script that I think uh, a lot of people had become comfortable with, right? But I think both of these stories helped to upend any notion that it was always that way, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. public... Mm -hmm. attention and ideas around who Asian Americans were, um, mm -hmm. were always the way that they were today or in the last 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, you, your family's story um, in the incarceration camps and Yuri Kochiyama's story, right? Like, I just, I, I think that they kind of show that um, the way that Asian Americans have been racialized has not always been true, right? Oh, and so that it's it, a more recent thing. Yeah, and that I think it, it it provides some solace for like, oh, if there is actually some recovery of this difference, that there's a time before this, <laughs> there's a time before this that I yeah. think we have to remember any time that um, yeah. this version of Asian American racialization is just sort of treated as as mere fact, right? And I think as we remember sort of this very marginalized existence, I think it forces our communities to sort of imagine what communal political power can look like outside of formal institutions or formal centers oh, of power, yeah. you know, um, because of the sort of experiences of marginality, right? Like we can't always assume 
I think the protection of like respectability, or we can't assume the protection of like, um, you know, middle like socioeconomic success and right, like yeah. the kind of influence or access that, to participation access. In institutions that were exactly. set up for these changes. I see. So exactly. it seems like there's just uh, it's a little bit more of a, a a broader space and some level of creativity. Exactly. It's not just about, so going back to kind of your criticism of like, ah, uh, yes, voting is a great thing. And then also recognizing what actions of advocacy exist for those who are excluded. Yeah. And disenfranchised. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think, um, you know, we, we did some overview of like current discourse on sort of like what um, civil engagement looks like, right? And that inevitably sort of falls into this conversation about civil religion and what motivates people to be good citizens in a, in a, in a, in a country, right? Or in a state. And I think to remember that those discourses assume a sort of sameness as far as privilege oh, right. and access yes. to resources goes, right? Yeah. And so that sort of conver- contemporary conversations in political science and sociology around like re- disc- like religious power or religious access to political power yeah. um, doesn't often apply to, I'd say, like disenfranchised and marginalized communities, right? And so I think oh, these totally. two stories sort of right. show um, what creative things can be born away from centers of power. I see. I see. If we need to make our own way because the roads that have been given for us to go have like a do not enter sign, it sounds like on it. (laughs) You know, one of the things that struck me as we were doing the work and the research was I was really surprised that as different as the Japanese American community and the Filipino American community are, there's a couple of similarities that I noticed of, you know, there's a way that these intergenerational stories sort of inform the moment. You know, so I think like Larry and Yuri Kochiyama were all really informed by their families' right. experience, like experience over many years. So not just their own in yes. this moment, in this time. I think there's just a connectedness to both the past and the future that really popped for me. Yeah. Maybe the other thing that I noticed with some level of grief, but it also was a little bit helpful to see, is that no, no community was really able to act entirely on its own self. They didn't have yes. the social power, the political power, the culture. There's, you know, language issues, all sorts of things. But everyone worked across a line to build yeah. a big enough community or to build a big enough tent. And I just thought that might actually be sort of a lovely um, gift, I think, for the Christian community uh, to, to recognize the way. So I think that there was that's the pragmatism that I think you yeah. talked about of of having to find common cause, yeah. Uh, because your communities are either so marginalized or have so many obstacles, right? You know, and how do we work together to build this change? So I, I those were a couple of things that I thought were really striking to me. That I thought, oh, okay, it's important that these stories come to light. So this work was uh, put together as as part of a paper uh, submitted for uh, a Scott Bediaco Forum which was sponsored by Infamint. And, and the conference center, which I, which I think is really compelling, is uh, Jesus and Empire, Christian Witness in the Context of Power. Yeah. And I've, one of the things I appreciated about this uh, consultation that was looking at Jesus and Empire and what does it mean to be a, a faithful Christian and civic engagement was that it was held in Romania, Eastern Europe. Mm, and yeah. 
I just think the way that uh, so many different voices were pulled together for this Stott Badiago consultation was helpful because people were coming from so many different country contexts and they yeah. had so many different reflections um, that it helped me separate some of the assumptions or the ways that I kind of conflate democracy and Christianity. Right. You know, and, and I, those are not equal. And it also helped frame some of the uh, interrogation around colonialism that we have yeah. by broadening it to this concept of empire, because uh, I see that play out in sort of different um, political expressions. But I think it was really helpful uh, as Christians for Social Action to be present there. Um, Ron was sort of an early observer. Uh, we don't, you know, he wasn't really part of the founding of it because it was really born from the global church. But I think uh, Ron was part, of, was there at the beginning and he he intentionally wanted to be an observer and learner. Yeah. Um, and, and so that felt like a great privilege, you know, to be there. But also I'm very eager to hear uh, some of the papers and the ideas that are coming out uh, from that. Well, David, thank you so much uh, for joining and for sharing some of your work. Uh, it's, fascinating uh, to hear the questions that you're wrestling with. And uh, it helps make us sharper and hopefully more nuanced in our approach. Um, but also, I think it's an act of justice, the way that you are highlighting some of these important stories that otherwise might get lost. So thanks a lot for joining us on this side of the mic. Thank you so much, Nikki. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. We're produced and edited by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and the music is done by Andre Henry. You can find us on the web at ChristiansforSocialAction.org. Give us five stars, write a review, and share about the podcast with your friends. Mm-hmm.